Father, we thank you for the gift of music. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen that we would breathe today while we slept and were incapable of choices. You chose that history would be given another day to repent. And all around the world today, Lord, this will be the day that uh, tens of thousands of people will receive Christ as they hear the gospel preached through faltering, uh, frail lips like mine. And they will believe. By your grace, you will place it in their hearts. You'll persuade them as you have persuaded us today to rise from our beds, to get in our car, to come like a magnet drawn to a place of hope, causing us to believe as the world does not believe that what we hear and what we sing is true and right and eternal. We thank you, God, that you have not left us, but you've pursued us. You chose us. You arranged people, circumstances, events. Even before the world began, Lord, you made sure that this day would would exist for Hope Point, for Spartanburg, and for the world, for the nations. I thank you, Lord, that somewhere in that village in Africa and somewhere in the in that desolate slum in India, there is a preacher, there's a pastor, a church has been planted. And because you ordained that, someone will be saved today. Because you waited and because you persuaded, they will believe as we have believed. So keep us believing, God. Our only hope, God, is your pursuit of us. We are runners by nature. We are quitters by nature. And it is the reason that you get all the praise and all the glory is when we make it across the finish line, all we can say is from the beginning of time until the end, you have done it all. And we come today to say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever watched a news interview where after the first question was asked by the newscaster that the person that was interviewed spoke with such passion and rapidity that you knew that there was not going to be a question number two. It's not going to break into that response. When you come to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, um, you, basically, you basically get that feeling from the Apostle Paul that he is just not going to stop talking. Verses 3 through 14, even though they comprise 12 verses in your American, your English version, they are just one sentence in the Greek New Testament. When he begins to talk in verse 3, verse three even though he would break the heart of my English teacher, Miss Ward, in, in, uh, in, in high school, and Paul would be guilty of one run-on sentence after another, that's all it is, one sentence in the Greek, and it's a massive Mount Everest type of sentence because he takes us in verse 3 from before time began, in verse 3, to verse 14, to the end of history. Doesn't stop talking in one sentence about all that God has done before there was a before there was matter, time, and space. God was at work in your salvation in today's service. And takes us all the way beyond today's service to the end of time in those 12 verses. And in order to accomplish our salvation in those 12 verses, he talks about 
the work of the Trinity. The Father chose us, the Son has saved us, and the Spirit of God seals us so that we will not fall away from that salvation. The verse is so large, it's such a Mount Everest that you can't ascend that mountain in one day. Our hike today will attempt, and I, I just, even in the back, I was looking at where I want to go today and just just don't know what I'm going to do at a certain point. I just know we can't even make it, I don't think, through the three verses of, of, of this. But we do need to read them together as a section. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will to all this working out to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has given us freely and the one that He loves. So the theme of verses 3 through 6 is a microcosm of the theme of verses 3 through 14. It's just a celebration of praise. That's all Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is and the reason why it has always been one of my favorite uh, long sentences of the Bible is because you're just privy to watching a man explode in praise to God. Let's begin with his overarching word of praise. Verse 3, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So of all the places that Paul could have chosen to say, this is what makes me most happy, he says, I want to start with reminding you, the church, of your spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly realms. He said, that's what makes me feel most joyful and most secure. Why does he start there as the source of his joy? Well, let's define heaven first. Heaven, we will call, is the place of the unseen world of spiritual reality. So Paul says, I'm excited about all the blessings that are for you in the heavenly realms, even though they are unseen by the people of this earth. In other words, right now, this gymnasium is filled with angels. You're going to go home this week and go throughout your day and you're going to spread fertilizer in your yard and you're going to go to work and you're going to go to lunch and you will be attended by angels and the world will miss that because they're invisible. This day we are walking in white robes purchased by Jesus Christ, forgiven, righteous bodies walking from here on a bridge to heaven. And the world doesn't see our walking. We're headed to heaven. So Paul is excited about the unseen yet very world of heaven 
where all of the blessings of God are kept for us. So that's how he starts his praise. I'm grateful for the real world, yet the unseen world of heaven. And so what he wants us to do is say every day we are to take our minds and our hearts up to a place where our bodies cannot go. That's how we're to live on this earth. It's what we're doing right now. It's what we did through the beautiful music that preceded us and will follow through music and teaching. Our bodies cannot go, but our minds and hearts today, right now, are in heaven, being touched by God, enjoying spiritual blessings. Now, why would you want to daily travel to heaven? Think about it. Where is Jesus Christ right now? Well, he is in heaven. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, 6, a verse that we'll see later, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So daily, as we spend time in the word Corporate worship, whether the believers in prayer, every time we do these things, we ascend into heaven, bodies on earth, minds and hearts in heaven where we already belong, and we spend time with Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of Paul's blessing in the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. And he refers to all these blessings as spiritual blessings. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessings. And I thought this was interesting this week as I was studying, why does he call them spiritual blessings? And I'll just throw some ideas out, not speaking with perfection here, just thinking. I think they would be called spiritual blessings is because Everything that God wants to communicate to a believer, he communicates through the Holy Spirit. All the blessings that God has in, in heaven for you, all the joy, peace, forgiveness, contentment, all the things that cause you to smile and say life is filled with purpose, all of those are kept in heaven and are given to you by the Holy Spirit, it's like we are in the bottom of the ocean and one of those uh, underwater bells, underwater scuba bells, and we are connected to heaven above by a lifeline that is the Holy Spirit. And I think he also calls these blessings spiritual blessings because they really are better than material blessings. Not the material blessings are bad. I like my house. I like my 2005 Toyota Tundra. I like putting pine straw in it. But what I really love about my house and my Tundra is when I'm in, those, in that car or in that house, I have something that's an immaterial blessing that's better than the car and the house, and that is joy. I have forgiveness for 58 years of sin. I have contentment. I have love. I have hope. I have peace with God. These are immaterial. They're not tangible like my pine straw and tangible like my bricks of my house, but they are more important to me. In fact, if I did not have joy, hope, love, and peace, what a tortured life I would live 
to be living 35 years in my house, in marriage, and neither Lisa nor I have love for one another and are stuck together in a house. But God puts love, immaterial, spiritual blessing in her heart, love, joy, peace, puts love, joy, peace in my heart. So in our material brick home, we enjoy spiritual blessings because we are connected by the lifeline of the Holy Spirit to all of the life and power of Jesus in heaven. And so God wants to communicate to this church in Ephesus, this is your future, this is your present and your future. You, you know what I really love about what he says to them? He says that all of these blessings are in heaven. They're there now, Jesus is in heaven. And no matter what you lose on earth, because remember, not many people get out to live Christianity like Americans do. We, we get Jesus and, and I'm not knocking it, it's just God's providence. We get Jesus and a lot of stuff in America. It's just a lot of really, really nice stuff on earth. These believers had nothing. They were poor and they were persecuted. And so he's reminding them that if you lose everything on earth, do not fret because you are almost home where all of your spiritual blessings in life are kept for. You. This is one of the greatest promises of Scripture. Because of your union with Jesus Christ, you will be given every spiritual blessing that will produce unending satisfaction and thrill in heaven, and that is in heaven with Jesus for you. Unending, uninterrupted satisfaction, all joy, love, and hope. We are almost home no matter what we lose on earth. So that's the future you can look forward to. You can enjoy it now through prayer, Bible study, worship, but you can look forward to it. No matter what you lose on earth, that's where you're headed, there. So here's the question Paul anticipates. You might ask, oh, how do I know that I'm going? How do I know that I'm going to get that? How do I know that this lovely, endless supply of blessings how can I know? Because my life is so unreliable on earth. My, my, my faith is so weak and frail and I'm, I'm, I waver. How can I know that I will have every spiritual blessing in Christ? It's a big question. So he answers that in the next verse. You ask, how can I know? And this is his answer. For... You know, when you see the word four in verse, like, like in verse four, it's the answer to verse three. We have all these spiritual blessings. How do we know we have all these spiritual blessings? For, because, this is, this is the source of your assurance. Because, then he tells you why. He chose you before the creation of the world. That's how you know you're going to make it. That's how you know you're going to enjoy all the heavenly, the, this grand future that God has for you with Jesus and all of the satisfaction of heaven is because you were chosen before earth began. 
I love how Piper says it. Before the creation of the universe, God thought of me. He fixed his gaze on me and chose me for himself. Verse 4, I just want you to see it again. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1 introduces us to the theological concept, which is called the doctrine of election. From the Greek word, eklegomai, election, choose. The doctrine of choosing, the doctrine of God's electing you to be part of His kingdom before He even created the world. Before one planet, one star, one person, God saw what would happen when He created a universe. That all of mankind would rebel against Him. And the force of the world, the the force of this anti-God cosmos, this worldly power, the force of the world would be like a powerful river that would entice people to jump in the river and drift far from God. And there was not one person that's ever lived that did not believe that the river of the world was more satisfying than God and all of us jumped in and were carried away from God. Everyone by their own choice jumped in the river believing that the current of the world had more to offer than the path of knowing and serving God. So as God looked at history, he saw that every human being he ever created would jump in the river and drift from him. And that's why God before him, beforehand, before any literal rivers were created, before any mountains and oceans and stars, before there was one planet and one person, God made a plan to save you out of the river. That's the doctrine of election, Ephesians 1.4. Before he created anything, he said, I am going to stop you from drifting down current in the wild river that's headed to falls where you will be destroyed. I'm going to save you out of the river, take you out of that river, and put you on the stable, eternal land of my salvation. I am going to choose you. In order to clean you up when he pulled you out of the river, he needed to provide a savior for the guilt that you incurred when you swam in the pollution of the river. And the Bible says this too was thought of before the beginning of time. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, you were redeemed from the empty way of life with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, and he was chosen just like you, he was chosen before the creation of the world. The death of Christ was 
predetermined before the world even sinned. The death of Christ for your sins was predetermined before you sinned. God did not only predetermine our existence, He predetermined that Christ would die on a cross because He knew that in our existing would be a lot of our sinning. Why did He take you out of the river? For He chose us in Him. Why did He choose you? Purpose. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. So God saw all of humanity floating down this river, reveling in the current of the river, in the force of the world, enjoying their rebellion against God, we enjoying our rebellion against God, flying away from God, and all of a sudden God chooses us, takes us out of this polluted river, puts us on the eternal land of His salvation, and there leads us to become holy and blameless. The word holy would be a reference to the gift of Jesus Christ's goodness given to you. So you say, he's made me holy, I was in a polluted river, he took me out, and all of a sudden he gave me all of the perfection of Jesus. Chose me to make me perfect through the gift of Christ's righteousness. Blameless, he chose me to give me the righteousness of Christ, and he chose me to make me blameless, which would be the removal of, of my imperfection. So before there was even matter, time, and space, God saw you flying down the river and He chose to take you out of the river and through the death of Christ, He chose to give you the righteousness of Christ and chose to remove from your body all of your imperfections. And so... Paul writes this to this church in Ephesus and says, This is who I call you to be in the city, holy and blameless. 250,000 idol-loving pagans bowing down at the temple of Diana, giving her glory for all the success of Ephesus. People engaging, reveling in immorality, adoring wealth and comfort and pleasure. And Paul said, all of these people caught in the river, and by my grace I've taken you out of that sinful, God-rebelling lifestyle to make you to be the opposite of your culture. I've given you the righteousness of Christ, and I've taken away your desire to sin with your city. So remember... The way we started this is we said we have all these spiritual blessings in Ephesians 1.3. I got all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And that was exciting. Wow. Everything that's going to lead to my spiritual joy and peace and contentment, all of it is given to me in Christ Jesus and is reserved in heaven. I'm not that far from home. Yeah. Then we ask, how do I know I'm going to get there? How do I know that I'm going to make it because I'm so unreliable? Are you reliable? 
You feel reliable? I don't feel reliable. So am I going to get to heaven based on my reliability? How much money did you give to God last year and how much did you keep for yourself? You want to base heaven on your giving, on your sacrificing, your reliability, your love? I don't want to base heaven on that. So Paul says you don't have to. The promise of you going to heaven and enjoying everything is the fact first that he chose you. He chose you out of the river before the world began. That's number one, basis of assurance you're headed to heaven. Number two is in verse five. He predestined us in love for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So if you were asking me today, what, Rich, what's your assurance <laughs> that you're going to heaven? Is it your reliability? That's a joke. Nope. My assurance is in love before the world began, he gazed upon me floating down the river and chose to take me out of the river and give me a heart that wants to be holy and blameless like Christ so he chose that I would have holiness and blamelessness given to me by Christ who died for my sins and my second assurance he predestined me to become his son through adoption Paul is a brilliant communicator. Brilliant. And so he takes this Roman concept of adoption and says, I want you to think in terms of knowing God the way that Romans loved and used adoption. For Romans, for a powerful Roman ruler, it meant everything to have a male heir. Like, I, got, I, own this, I own this kingdom. Who's going to inherit my legacy? Who's going to get all my stuff? Well, if you're like Julius Caesar, you don't have a son. You don't have a boy. Or you have his daughters. <laughs> no, no son to leave your stuff to. So he was perplexed. And so, toward the end of his life, he, Julius Caesar, probably the most famous of all the Roman adoptions, adopted his grandnephew, Octavius, to become heir to the throne. And we know who Octavius is. He went on to become the most influential of all the leaders of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. All because he was adopted by a powerful king. Well, that's a great story in history, but it really raises to me a fascinating question with why would God adopt a son? He has one. I mean, it's all it's all perfect. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. What's he doing adopting? 
in love. He's looking at everything that Jesus enjoys in heaven, all the glory, all the power, all the splendor, all the thrill of of eternity, being able to leap across stars and just all the power of sunrises and sunsets and supernovas and just massive, indescribable, unending glory that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are enjoying and have always enjoyed in heaven. And God said, I want others to enjoy this. And so he adopts you. In love, he goes out and he finds you swimming in that river, downstream, not thinking about God, not looking for God, chooses you out of the river, on the land of salvation, and adopts you and brings you into his family. (sighs) There are some of you in this... um, Church that by God's grace have gone through the process of adoption. And it just seems to be unending process of all the requirements. It was the same true in Rome. It's the same true now. The, the paperwork and the details and the money of all that it cost to adopt a child. What did it cost God to adopt you? In order for you to become an adopted son, he had to give the life of his only son. Any of you that have gone through adoption, do you feel like you've paid that much for your child? In order for you to become an adopted son, he had to give the life of his only son. And he did this in love. In order to make sure that you were going to get into God's family, he had to carefully orchestrate all of this. Couldn't leave it up to you because you would blow it. So what he decided to do was predestine your adoption. Predestine to determine before the beginning of time that you would be his. You know, when Lisa and I adopted Anna in 1994, I remember when we got that call in January, it was somewhere between zero degrees and five degrees. It was so cold. And we drove up to North Carolina, and we walked into that hospital, and long story short, Worked through some medical problems and some more legal stuff. But I'm telling you, Anna Smith had nothing to do with that adoption. We chose her. We walked into that NICU and we said what we had been saying for. Nine months, she was growing. Her mother's womb, 
For nine months, we'd been saying, we want to adopt you in order that we might lavish all the joy that's in the Smith house, and it's a lot. All the joy that's in our house, in our home, in our hearts, we want someone else to know what it's like to live in this house. I want, to, I want to be able to drive with you, Anna, last year to Monroe, North Carolina, and help you buy a Toyota 4Runner. I want to use my money to bless you. And so I'm coming to North Carolina in 1994, and I'm going to adopt you. And that's my choice. That's my choice. That's exactly what verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 1 says. Before time began, before God created matter, God determined that he would create a universe, populate the planet with people. Before creating this world, he knew that everybody would be sinful. He planned to send his son to die for their sins. And God knew that all people would be so self-absorbed, so blind to spiritual realities, that unless he chose to bring them into his kingdom, they would never come. So to guarantee that some would come into his kingdom, God arranged every necessary detail to ensure that you would hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he did this before there was ever even a planet earth. Now that's Ephesians 1.5 and you can read so many other, um, whoever's running PowerPoint, if you could just flick, read so many other verses in the New Testament that use the language of election and predestination that say the exact same thing as Ephesians 1.5. So when you approach this subject of the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. I want you to approach it like this. Not what are you comfortable with, what does the, but what does the Bible say? And it says that in love, God saw you floating down the river, and He chose that you would not drift to destruction and he planned your salvation. Now, here's where I run into trouble, and I think <clears throat> I will save some of this for next week. But this is what I want to say this week. Why did God do all this? We'll get there. In accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. <laughs> you say, why did God choose me? 
There is no explanation for it. It was his will to choose you. Why did God choose me? When I didn't deserve to be chosen to the praise of his glorious grace. When God says he did things by, the ple- by his pleasure and will, it simply is a reminder that the reason that you will be saved is that whenever God wills something, it will happen. When God wills the creation of the universe, stars and trees and bugs and water and moon and tides and clouds and flowers form by the power of his will. When God wills that Jesus Christ will rise from the dead, he will rise from the dead. And when God wills that you will be saved, you will be saved. So you are saved because God willed that you would not continue floating down the river and perish over the falls of destruction. Paul wants you to hear, though, in verse 5, when he did things in accordance with his pleasure and will, he also wants you to hear that the will of God is not like a tank that's just rolling without uh, any driver through a forest and just rolling over trees. He said that it's, when he uses the word pleasure, it refers to the good, kind intentions of God. So even if you don't understand everything about the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination, you need to go down to verse 5 and said God did all these things because it pleased him because it was strategically in his mind good and right and pleasing. He did all things that were pleasurable. The word pleasurable speaks of the tenderness of the will of God. Nothing cold and heartless about the will of God. His will is always combined with pleasure and good intentions. He thinks carefully about every decision. All of that is wrapped up in the word pleasure. And I know that whenever you talk about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the critic cries out, God can't do this. There should be across the board God saying, I'm going to treat everybody the same. And so what they want this verse to read, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious justice. So when you cry out, God cannot elect. God, you cannot predestine. Then all that you're left with is, then God, we want you to treat everybody according to how they deserve to be treated, according to his glorious justice, which condemns us all. So you either beg God for justice and your condemnation, or you beg God for grace that he would have mercy on some. And Paul says... He's praising God for His glorious grace. One other thing we might add, does the reality of predestination take away human responsibility? Not at all. Look at everybody that Jesus Christ called in the New Testament. What did He say? Follow me. And at that point, they had a choice to follow. I marvel at the people 
who come to me and say, I do not like the concepts of predestination and election because it, is a, it takes away choice. And I just want to tell them, what universe do you live in? Because I feel like every single day of my life, that's all I live in is the world of choice. I turn on my computer to study, and I look at that computer screen, and I know beyond a few keystrokes, it's a world of filth that I could choose. Or I could stay within my Bible programs and stay in a world of holy pleasure. My whole world is filled with choices. How can anybody say that predestination and election takes away human choice? I feel like every day I'm battling. And God, by His grace, puts it in my heart to see Him, to be inspired by Him, to be stirred by Him, to be invigorated, loved, motivated by Him. But He still says, just as Jesus said to every one of His disciples, follow me. And at that point, I make a choice of whether or not I will follow Him. I want to tell you this morning, it is impossible. Hear this. It is impossible to understand where divine sovereignty ends and human responsibility begins. You will not ever, no one ever, if they're honest and humble, has ever figured it out. God says, I elect, I predestine, and then he says, choose this day whom you will serve. I love what John Calvin says about this inability for humans to harmonize God's responsibility, our, our responsibility and God's sovereignty. Calvin says, where the Bible makes an end of teaching, let us make an end of learning. There's just so much, some things you can't understand and stop trying to understand but make sure you have the courage as a Bible teacher to teach both. Then when you come to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, I taught exactly what it said. Didn't apologize, rejoiced. Rejoiced. I know why I'm saved. He chose me. I love what Tony Moretta says about the concept of election. It is difficult for finite creatures with three-pound <laughs> fallen brains to comprehend how this doctrine relates to God's love for all people as well as how it relates to human choices. It's difficult. You look at Jesus Christ twice in the book of Luke. He looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps because they won't come to him. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long for you to come to me. And he's brokenhearted over their rejection of him. Look at all the teachings and parables and commands of Jesus Christ. He invites and he invites and he invites and he pleads, come to me and be saved. And then you got massive verses like 2 Peter 3.9 where the scripture says, God does not want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So for 21 centuries, it's been the global, bleeding, sending, pleading love of God that has inspired missionaries 
to go plant their lives among the nations of the world and plead with God to come to Christ. Yet, (laughs) in all of their preaching and discipling and their digging wells and building hospitals and establishing schools in the name of Jesus, they know that the human heart is so deceived and so selfish and so blind and so prideful and so reckless that unless God steps directly into a person's path and overpowers them with a glimpse of sin and their need to repent and trust Jesus as their Savior, unless God gives them faith to believe this radical call to turn away from self-worship and self-reliance, they will not come. One more Tony Moretta quote. How do we handle all of this lack of ability in our three-pound fallen brain to harmonize human responsibility and God's sovereignty? He says we should be okay with mystery. Encountering mystery should be a cue, should be a, a cue to start worshiping. This doctrine should put us on our faces in worship to the sovereign, wise, loving, gracious, and mysterious God who has chosen us in Christ. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile free will? How do you reconcile the teaching of human responsibility and God's sovereignty? How do you reconcile these in Scripture? And Spurgeon responded, I never have to reconcile friends. They're both taught in Scripture. God tells you today, choose to leave your sin, be saved, flee the wrath of God, and come to Christ. And at the same time, you can't do that unless He opens your eyes. So all will say at the end, to the praise of His glorious grace. Ephesians 1 opens up with a cry told you 14 verses or 3 through 14 you're predestined you're chosen and it ends in verse 13 you must believe (laughs) election and faith are in the same sentence in Ephesians 1 and only God can write such a sentence let me end with this I probably will cover this question next week if I want to revisit this. And the only reason I would revisit this is for the purpose of answering your questions about missions, prayer, and preaching, and witnessing, and the difference they do or do not make in the world. Don't have time to do it today because I want to sing. So people read Ephesians 1 and say, What about unbelievers? And my response is, Ephesians chapter 1 is not written for unbelievers. It is written for believers that we know who to thank. And we know who to give the praise and the honor to. When we are wrestling against spiritual forces that overwhelm us, challenge us, there are times in our life when we ask the question, is 
my heavenly Father for me. Have my compromises and my weaknesses turned him away? And here's the answer. If your salvation is the result of you choosing God, then I want to tell you it is possible that there would come a day where you can unchoose God. And what happens on a day if you die and that day you happen to unchoose God? You're lost forever. The doctrine of predestination reminds us that God's salvation is truly unconditional. It's not based on your performance because you weren't here when it was planned. You were chosen before you performed, before you did one good act or 10,000 bad acts. The ultimate message from Ephesians chapter 1 is this. Oh, did I not write it down? I didn't. I'll read it to you. The message from, from God in Ephesians chapter 1 is this. I chose you. You are mine. I have loved you before I created the world. There was a time when nothing existed but me. And that is when I chose you. Before you existed, before you did anything right or did many things wrong, I loved you. I loved you then and I love you now. And I will love you when history is over because I have loved you forever. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled. The boasts of our flesh are silent. We tremble, not with fear, but with awe. That before the world began, you saw into this gymnasium today those that you have chosen. You used the preaching of the word and the singing of songs to create faith so that we would be able to choose. But all of this, God, has made possible because before the world began, you and your love determined that we would not float helplessly, pollutedly down the river to destruction. We thank you that we have been chosen. We marvel at it. We owe you everything. You had a son, and yet you allowed us to become your sons and your daughters. You predestined our adoption and then you came and paid to bring us home with the blood of Christ. We owe you everything. And today we've come to just say thank you that you would choose us. In Jesus' name, amen.